You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. When you think about Africa, what comes to mind? It's hard not to be swayed by years of news reports of crisis and conflict. But as we'll hear, another narrative is starting to take hold. One centred on urbanisation, technology, rising incomes and better government. It's a story told compellingly in a new book, Africa's Business Revolution, written by McKinsey partners Acheleke and George DeVoe and McKinsey alumnus Mutsa Shironga. I was lucky enough to catch up with Acher and George in person for a wide-ranging conversation about Africa's business scene today, how and why it's changing, and why Africa might just be the world's next great growth market. So, George and Acher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Delighted to be with you. So imagine for a minute that I'm, I'm you know, running a big multinational company. I, I've got options to invest in many different parts of the world. Why should I prioritize Africa? Why should I be thinking about scaling up in Africa in particular? Well, I would say if you're a multinational company, uh, there's no better place to invest in, than, than in Africa. If you think of the continent today, uh, we always say it's young, it's fast growing, and it's urbanizing. Right? It's young. You know, half of Africans are under the age of 19. Right, so you know, if you're taking a long-term, take a 10, 20, 30-year view, you know, where else do you want to be? It's it's fast-growing, right? Population, we're going to add another billion or so Africans over the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, we'll have the largest workforce, uh, working-age population, larger than China, uh, in 6,000 days, and uh, and it's urbanizing, right? And so we're the fastest-growing, we're the fastest urbanizing region in the world. Every every year, we have 24 million Africans moving to cities. And so to reach them is actually not that difficult, right? You know, you just have to focus on, on, on a few critical cities. And so if you put all that together and you take a long-term view and you're a consumer-facing company, you know, it's, it's hard to think of a better place, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, in Nigeria today alone, you know, there are more babies born every year than in the whole of Western Europe. So if you're a diaper company, where would you want to be, be based? Uh, so it's a little bit about thinking about uh, whether you should have gone, gone into China 25 years ago. And uh, having lived in, in China at the time, you know, you can actually see uh, the parallel playing out in Africa. You know, it's roughly the same population, but also I find uh, quite extraordinary is uh, the level of energy, the level of development. When you go to a place like uh, a city like Lagos, you really think you are in China 25 years ago. And so when you look at this and you look at the energy, the entrepreneurship, the drive, you know, it's, you know, it will probably take a different shape and form, but it will actually develop. But with two differences, which I think are very important, which is that um, what you have in Africa is the young, young population, as Acha mentioned, uh, which I think is a, uh, will drive the development uh, to, on, on a different scale, because we'll get to 2 billion people in the next uh, 20 years. And second is because um, of uh, the um, availability of technology. And where Africa, in a sense, uh, contrary to where China was 25 years ago, is actually leapfrogging in many places with technology. And that sort of opens up a lot more opportunities that people may not have seen completely at this stage. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add one thing that actually Tijantia uh, mentioned in the book is like, you know, if you think of, we talked a lot about the population growth, but you also think about the growth in disposable income. 
because what you're finding is there's GDP growth and that's translating into disposable income growth. When you combine those two factors, you know, it's more of an exponential growth than a linear growth, right? And so if you, uh, you know, and there are very few places in the world today where you really get, you know, those two factors coming together uh, uh, that strongly. So you two must spend a lot of time talking with clients about Africa and the Africa opportunity. What are some of the misconceptions that you, that you hear as you do that? I mean, the one thing uh, I always say, there's, there's a big difference between in perception of risk versus the reality on the ground, right? So a lot of clients who are not based on the continent, you know, tend to read the news and the sensational headlines you hear, and their view of the risk is actually quite different from what's on the ground. <laughs> Um, I used to have a client, it was a downstream oil company, and they said, look, we're in 30 countries. Every year, five will blow up, but we don't know which ones will, but the other 25 will do great, right? And what they always told me, they're like, you know, but we love being in Africa because we do very well. Uh, and so we're very happy for people out there to think Africa is too risky, and they would come in so that we would have less competition, right? So, so there's a big difference between, between perceived risk versus the reality on the ground. That's one of the, 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 big, the big differences I see. And the other thing that I think people uh, fail to realize is how uh, important actually Africa already is uh, in terms of an industrial or a, a private sector, and in fact doing quite well. Uh, we uh, actually surveyed and under understood which were companies and how big they were in Africa. When we would ask uh, executives in Africa or outside of Africa, how many companies do you think have revenues of more than a billion U.S. dollars a year? You know, most people would, you know, argue between 50, maybe 100. Uh, many actually, would say 10. Some many <laughs> would say 10, actually. Uh, and the reality is there is more than 400 of them. And in addition, not only there are large institutions, but on top of that, they tend to grow faster than their peers in the world and be at least as profitable. So it's actually a healthy place if you know what you're doing and if you know how to capture the opportunity. I mean, you're dead right. I read the book and I was very surprised to find that number. 400 companies with over a billion dollars of revenue. The only two people who've gotten that number right. And we've, you know, each time we do the presentation, we typically ask uh, how many companies you think exist. The last time I did it uh, was actually in Barcelona two weeks ago. And uh, the answer we got was between 10 and 20, right? So typically they tell us 50 to 100. Only person, one of the people who've gotten it right, only one of two is Aliko Dangote, who has a good feel for what's going on the continent, as we know, the richest uh, African, the richest black man in the world. But, but very few people realize the extent of how big the private sector is and, uh, and the scale of the kind of companies you can build on the continent. And part of the reason why they don't realize uh, how big the private sector is is because 70% of those companies are actually African. And so if you're African, you know. <laughs> and African CEOs actually, actually figured it out and you know, are very happy with what's happening and what they are able to achieve. But the rest of the world typically underestimates what's happening because they, they heard about all the failures. And they, the ones who are active and successful tend to be quite understated. I mean, just to be devil's advocate, the, the political risk is very real. As you pointed out, Atcha, that there are certain certain countries, you know, in any given five-year period, that there will be more political risk and volatility than there might be in some other regions of the world. I mean, just how do you respond to that? And as a CEO, how do you manage around that? I mean, let's be clear, there are risks, right? I mean, political is one. So we urge our clients typically to think both not just from a growth perspective, but also combine growth and risk. And when you do that, you actually see three very clear sets of countries that emerge, right? They're the countries that are quite stable growing fast and quite stable. 
And that tends to be these days more the East African and the Francophone African countries, right? So the Rwandas and the Ethiopians of the world. Um, but also you see some countries like Cote d'Ivoire, Morocco, countries like that. Then you have some that are what we call vulnerable growers. So they're still growing, but they've been exposed to some of, the, of, of some of the shocks, right? So you know the oil shocks affected places like Nigeria and Angola. And then you have a, a set of countries that just have not been, have struggled to, to just grow, right? And those are places like, like South Africa. Right? So those are the three segments. And in the past, as much as, you know, as an executive look at the continent, you could literally go anywhere and you'll find growth. What you find now, you have to be a lot more granular and a lot more careful, right? Because, you know, the, the now pockets of growth, you have to be, and the last thing is even more important to really understand the situation on the ground. Because, you know, you find growth, you have to really get a better sense for how the countries are doing, but how the sector even is doing in, in the country you're interested in. But you, you also have to look at it and say, you know, this is a long-term play. You know, this is a 20, 30 years play. You know, it's the same as, you know, China was 30 years ago, India was 15 years ago. Africa is going to be the next pillar of growth, right? Just because of demographics, because of the um, natural resources, because of uh, urbanization. And so what you need to do is you need to build a resilience that enables you to manage the risks that are inherent to these different three types of countries that Dacha was talking about, in order to make sure that um, you are able to, to go through and weather the storms at some point. Because you, know, you take a country like Nigeria, for example, which uh, many people would say, well, it's difficult, it's dangerous, there's risks, there's uh, Boko Haram, there's all these uh, issues. But there is 180 million inhabitants with a striving group of entrepreneurs who are really driving very hard to develop their own enterprises. And, and therefore, that's a force that you cannot ignore. And you have that with Nigeria, you have um, Ethiopia with um, about 90 million people. You have the whole Francophone West Africa, which is another 100 million. So those are massive places where people are really trying hard to develop and build uh, their economies. Definitely, I think diversifying your portfolio makes sense, right? And what we found is the most successful companies have typically been across multiple countries, right? Because like I said, you just never know when something could happen. If you look at the multinationals that, are, that have been most successful, they've been in 10 or more countries and they've been here for a long time, so that's one. But secondly, which is important, is we've also realized in this billion, these companies that are, have revenues of more, over a billion dollars, it's very difficult to build a billion dollar business if you're not in one of, one of three economies, if not in South Africa, Nigeria, or Egypt. It's just very difficult, you just don't have enough scale. And so as you think about diversifying your portfolio, think also about what is the role that one or many of, of these three countries will play in that portfolio. Just talk a little bit more about what it takes to win in, in Africa. It's the backbone of the book. Building for resilience uh, in your strategy, taking that into account, that's clearly a, a lever. What are the other things that jump out to you? As the, what's the secret sauce? A lot of the book was focused on, on this sort of what's the secret sauce, right? And we found uh, four elements to that. And I'll bring them all together and we'll talk about each. So one was, uh, as Josh talked about, mapping your Africa strategy, which is very much, it's more about where to play, which country should you play in. Um, you know, do you want to do what I call a Vodacom strategy? Or do you want to do an MTN strategy, which is, you know, go across multiple countries at once, right? And those, you could be very successful either one, but you need to pick. And city, right, we always say, you know, if you're a consumer-facing company, we always talk about, you know, think cities, not countries. So what five, what 20 cities do you want to be in versus what five countries? But that's really about, you know, where do you want to play? Then after there's, you know, innovating a business model, what parts do you want to innovate in? Is that we've seen a number of players who've innovated in products and services. 
We've seen others who innovated in just, um, if we could leverage technology uh, uh, to innovate. So you have to think about, you know, which parts is, is it just driving costs down to really be one of the lowest cost producers? So, so there's, there's an element around, around the business model. There's a third element that, that we've seen around, and we've talked about it, that's the resilience. How are you going to build resilience? How do you make sure that, that you're here for a long term? Because you're going to have ups and downs. This is a continent, it's 54 countries. There'll be ups and downs, but how do you build resilience? And within that is, what parts of the value chain do you want to control? Because right? we've seen a lot of companies that have been successful have had to insource a lot of what they would typically outsource in other markets because they need to gain control of that. Right? And then fourth is, is, is the talent. Right? How, do you, how are you going to build the talent you need? And each of these on its own you know, is, is, is not rocket science. But I'd say two things. What we've seen companies that have been successful, they've been actually able to do to, to be successful across each of those four elements. So they've known exactly where to play. They've been very careful about which, where they're going to innovate. They've been very careful about how they build resilience. And they've found a way to really grow talent. And the second thing we found, which is actually quite, quite, quite interesting for us, is the most successful companies have come at it from a, one and doing the right thing for the continent. So it's about what we call doing good by doing well. So they've been successful. They didn't come here just because they wanted to make money. They said, I want to solve a problem. Um, and on the back of that, I will make money, right? But they came and that's how you, kept, you have a longer term perspective. You have a mindset of really trying to make a difference and improving people's lives. And on the back of that also being quite, quite, quite a successful company for our shareholders. One thing that's very clear in Africa is you need to really think hard about the product and services and be able ready to innovate. You could say that in most markets in the world, but I think it's particularly relevant in Africa because the needs are going to be quite uh, local. So you need to think about you know colors and taste and price points. Uh, and so it's not about replicating um, a business model or services that has worked somewhere else. And there's an example of um, this Chinese company who is making smartphones for Africa. Actually, they are dedicated to build them for Africa. What they did is they actually modified the camera's features so that they can give better rendering for people with dark skins. Uh, because that is something that you know is some is appealing to African consumers. So you really need to go down into the details and the trenches of what really matters for African consumers if you want to be relevant to them. I mean, in terms of innovation, if you look at Equity Bank, right? Equity Bank, it's it's a bank in Kenya. You know what what Equity Bank has been able to do is provide banking services to millions and millions of Kenyans. Um, and what they did, they basically leveraged technology, right? And so they were not able, they didn't go out to build a bunch of branches. And today, if you look at East Africa, actually, by the way, today, Africa has the most number of uh, mobile money subscribers around the world. 100 million Africans uh, use mobile money. Uh, and that's because there's a, we're leapfrogging uh, in that sector, right? And we're not building branches, so that's one. But you see a lot of technology innovations across sectors, right? We started with seeing it in the financial services space. We're seeing it in, in energy, right? So at the time when you wanted to get energy to rural regions, you had to you know, build these transmission lines all the way to villages. You will never be able to make a return on your investment. Governments didn't have money to build it. But now with some systems as MCOPA, but the B-Box and a number of other you know, solo home system players, leveraging, leveraging mobile technology and leveraging mobile payments, you can literally buy a solar home system for yourself, take a loan for it, and pay on a daily basis, right? And then pay it off. And on the back of that, you can actually get a loan for another product. Talk a little bit more about this whole concept of, of choosing where to play in the value chain, and in some cases, actually sort of integrating. Just talk a little bit more about why that might matter in an African context, and maybe a couple of examples. This notion of getting a real understanding of where in the value chain 
you need to create control and, and quality is very important to success. For example, you know, in uh, e-commerce uh, for a company like Jumia, uh, they will also try to control and improve the last mile and be able to deliver because they have to do it. The same way that Alibaba and Tencent did it in China, right? They replicate it because you, know, you can't get the last mile, you can't get a depot, so you have to control it and you have to have the right service level, and you have the right security, safety for, for, uh, for the goods and so on and so forth. So in some cases it's also a, you just have to have it in order to give the, quite, the, the right level of, of customer satisfaction. And, and Jumia is Africa's e-commerce giant, or trying to become Africa's yeah, e-commerce giant. So Jumia is, in a, you know, is, is replicating the, the whole um, idea of the e-commerce as happened in China, and you know, they have 400,000 merchants online. It's developing you know, very well, and it serves a need. And the need is interesting because we, we talked a bit earlier about uh, why would that work? Well, part of the reason and what they found in, uh, in Jumia is that um, actually a lot more of their sales came from the rural areas than they expected. They expected everything to come from urban areas. And part of the reason is because there is no availability of retail stores. And so for people who have decent income in more rural areas, they don't have the time, they can't really access uh, into a, a, a urban center and they're very happy to uh, transact online as long as they can get the delivery there. And so you come back to how do you guarantee. And that's the last mile. And that's the last mile. So Amazon or whoever, yeah. you can rely on the United States Postal Service or UPS or whoever to do your deliveries, but that's not available in rural Africa, so they have to own that piece of the value yeah. chain. Uh, we always talk about Dangote. 12 years ago, Nigeria imported all of its cement. Right? Every single cement that was imported. And uh, at the time, President Obasanjo um, had a discussion with him and said, what is it going to take for you all, for your cement importers to produce locally? And he said, well, uh, you know, give us an incentive to produce locally. And so what they decided, they put together what they call this backward integration policy. And they said they'll only give licenses to import cement to those who can show them that they're actually building cement plants. And, and they said, this year we'll give you, you can import X amount, and that's going to decrease every year. And over the course of four years, after four years, you shouldn't import anything else. You wouldn't have a license to import because your plant should be up and running. Fast forward, today Nigeria is a net exporter of cement. Right? So they produce enough for the local market and they export it. And they've created the richest black man in the world. Right? So there's, there's, there's a big piece around uh, import substitution that's very important for our countries. I mean, we still import billions of dollars of food every year across the continent. Right? and how much of that can you produce locally, um, and that's important. And then as a company, what you then need to do when you decide where you want to play there is understand how much of, of, of your inputs you need to control because the inefficiencies you know, in the ports, the inefficient infrastructure is a problem. Dangote, for example, has 10,000 trucks right, to go deliver the cement in, in more advanced markets he would not need. He could outsource that to somebody. But that's a huge competitive advantage to him. So really understanding where your competitive advantage is and how you can control that. There is a massive need for actually producing locally for local demand. You know, we estimate that um, you know, there's about $500 million worth of industrial manufacturing in, in Africa. And we, we believe it could be doubled uh, so within to a, trillion. a decade. Uh, roughly a trillion. And all, but of that, contrary to what China was 20, 30 years ago when China went export. Export driven. Yeah. Right. In Africa, two thirds would be for local consumption. All of this can be produced. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, an opportunity that, for example, Chinese companies have seized.
in uh, Ethiopia, you have the one of the largest, uh, you have the largest ceramic tile factory in Africa, and it was built by a Chinese company and, you know, is now right, one of the market leaders. And that has been replicated uh, many times. So there's a, also this notion of, you know, just going where the needs are and building the right uh, service models because the demand is there. Yeah, and uh, oh, it's funny because of that $500 billion of products that are manufactured today, Chinese companies account for about 12%. These are not... My, products manufactured in China and imported in, on the continent. These are Chinese companies like the ceramic file manufacturer based in Angola, in Kenya, in Cameroon, in Senegal, manufacturing locally about 12% of, of Africa's food production. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because we, I think there's been some McKinsey research, what one reads about it in, in the media as well. But So on the ground, it's a very real phenomenon. China in, in Africa is incredible, incredibly real. And, um, and it's interesting because... Um, you know, I think there's a lot of myth about uh, Chinese presence because what's generally reported is the whole infrastructure project and the project financing by the Chinese government and all of this, which does exist. But what I think is misunderstood is the sheer economic presence from the Chinese private sector. Our own uh, research, um, you know, we, we had to send uh, interview a thousand Chinese companies in Chinese to understand what really was happening. And, we, we believe there is about 10,000 Chinese companies operating uh, in Africa, but 85% of them are private. And they're private because these are Chinese entrepreneurs who 25 years ago in China built a manufacturing plant for flip-flops or for, that's a true example by the way, or for uh, ceramic tiles. And then they realize that they can replicate this because you know they look at the market, there is a market, there is demand, there is just no supply, and so they build it. And they do it, and it's actually beneficial for Africa because 85%, again, of their employees are African. So it is really an economic force that is, I think, misunderstood very often. So as you say, the Chinese entrepreneurs, they're, they're creating a lot of jobs. They're actually leveraging local talent. It, it's one of the themes of the book, as you, you mentioned, Atra. It's one of the sort of part of the secret sauce is getting the talent right on the ground in, in Africa. Again, imagine I'm a CEO. What's the advice you give to me, uh, uh, you know, how I think about talent in Africa? One of the things that always is, um, is, has been striking for me is, um, and quite different, I would say, that Asia again, uh, so to, to draw the parallel is, very um, senior leadership or top talent. You know, you have very, very good talent in Africa, very well educated, you know, went to all the best universities, come back, there is a passion to be, to be there. You have also people at the front line who are uh, extremely ambitious, want to develop, and you know, not, they don't always have the right craftsmanship. What's really going to be the struggle and that for most people is going to be to develop the, the intermediary talent and to develop leadership over time. And that's, I think, is going to is is really one of the challenges that we've heard many times. And so, some people like um, uh, Jumia, for example, have created a university to try to build their own middle management and build them over time. Uh, some other pe some other people, like an oil company, for example, builds has building um, uh, technical and vocational training to um, actually create um, uh, if a, a whole family of mechanics who can then be in inside, uh, open up their own garage that can then use the right products. So that's the, the, the challenge is going to be around vocational talent and, and I would say early management. I think everybody would agree over time as a multinational, the question is how do you Africanize your, your talent, right, and make it much more African. 
which has been, and some, some, some companies like GE, Standard Chartered have been very, very successful at doing it, so there's a way to do it. Uh, to George's point, for the frontline workers, just also rethinking a bit what, what, what success looks like and what are the markers for success in these candidates and take a bit of risk. Yeah, and being prepared to make, uh, to be flexible, to do some investment where you might not do it uh, in other parts of the world. And to your point, George, thinking long term as well. That's going to take time to grow the talent and you have to be, it has to be part of your strategy from day one. And so what you, but what you need to put in place is systems and the processes to make sure it happens. You give them the opportunities, give them the right coaching, the right training. And then when you do that, you, you know, it grows over time. But the other thing I, I think I would uh, think about talent is the opportunity that's linked to diversity and gender diversity and uh, because you have a very strong talent pool with women and women in, in Africa are actually already uh, playing an important role in the economic society. And therefore, that's also an area where you have a, an immense potential uh, to develop talent and to develop strong African women leaders. And some of them are... Uh, very impressive, whether they're in the governments or others. In you know, they are uh, quite quite influential. It is it is an area where I think for especially for multinationals, uh, you have a access to uh, terrific talent. So a, a lot of our conversation so far has been very positive and, and rightly very positive. There's a lot to play for in Africa, clearly, but you know there are also some pretty big barriers to doing business in Africa. You know, what's the reality of doing business on the ground and what are some of the barriers just of getting things done? Now, let's be clear. I mean, you know, there are, there are, there are clear barriers, right? Um, you know, infrastructure is one. If you look at the continent today, you know, we are spending $80 billion a year on infrastructure. We used to spend 40, but we need to spend 150, right? So, and infrastructure gets in the way, whether it's power or it's roads or it's, you know, airports, ports, across any asset class. We're completely under uh, under index relative to any other emerging market, right? So infrastructure is definitely a, a big barrier. There are ways around it again, right? But that that's a barrier. Ease of doing business. If you look at you know just if you look at the the World Bank rankings, you know many of the African countries are sort of at the bottom of that ranking now. A number have actually improved significantly, right? Nigeria, for example, went up 24 points last uh, 24 places last year. Rwanda has been always a darling. Uh, Mauritius has been. But there's still quite a bit. So, so a lot of country, countries are, are making efforts to reform and make the, 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 the business environment easier. And, and ease of doing business, to be practical, is, is like permitting. Yeah, starting a company, paying paperwork. taxes, um, you know, getting access to electricity for your business. You know, all the, the normal things that business would expect that will be provided to them. Right. And so, so some progress has been made on that. There's still a lot more needs to be made. Corruption is another, you know, issue that people talk about a lot on the continent, which is real, right? By the way, it takes two to to tango on this front as well. So it's not just you know blaming the governments, but it takes two to tango. Uh, so so there are a number of challenges, uh, but but again, those who've been successful have been those who've been able to take these challenges and recast them as opportunity, right? Because behind every challenge is an opportunity, and that's what differentiates the winners from the losers. And so, and you know those barriers are real, uh, but. They also, you have to take them into the perspective also, you know, are they being addressed? Are they improving? For the, 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 regional, uh, the regional groupings, you know, East African community, you can see the intra, inside those regions, you can see the trade going up, uh, you know, 15% or, or more. And so those the things um, are progressing. 
and to some extent, you know, they remind me a little bit of the early days of, um, you know, China and Southeast Asia, where, you know, in, uh, in, nine, in, in 2000, if you wanted to uh, deliver trucks from Beijing to uh, Guangzhou, you know, you'd take two or three weeks and be, had to stop at every border, at every provincial border, and there is no highways. That's where you are. But, you know, it, will, it is getting, I think it is, it will get there, and you can find ways around it in the meantime. And then as the uh, barriers improve, then, then, you know, of course, your business opportunity will continue. And I'll give you another example. Um, um, travel across Africa. Uh, and we've been working as McKenzie in partnership with the African Development Bank and the World Economic Forum on this, because if we're going to, you know, we talk about Africa, but it's 54 countries, right? And so you know, to be able to increase intra-Africa trade, the 75% of manufacturing that for which opportunities in Africa is, is going to have to circulate across the continent, right? And so we need people to be able to travel around. Five years ago, uh, we did this analysis, and we showed then that on, Afri on average, an African needed visas for 60% of African countries. Uh, mind you, at the time, a European needed visas for 52% of African countries. An American needed visas for 45% of African countries. So it was easier for an American or European travel across the continent. And there were only five countries that allowed any African to travel. Uh, either you could go there without a visa or you could just get it on arrival, right? only five. You know, we've, been, we've been doing a lot of work. We publish a report every year that, that now the African Development Bank publishes called Africa Visa Openness Index. And the good news is today we have 20 countries, uh, we're up to 20 that allow visa-free access to any Africans, right? So, you know, we're, it's out of 54 countries, we still have a long way to go, but that's the kind of progress that has been made in, uh, in five years. You see, you already see a lot of impact on tourism, it's a lot of impact on intra-Africa trade, right? And just travel across from Af Africans visiting those countries, right? So, uh, we're seeing, we're hoping to see much more of that going forward. I know there's ambitions for a, a uh, Africa-wide free trade area. Do we think that's going to happen in, in reality? I know it's been proved in principle, but now it needs to be ratified, right, no, by it, the individual it, countries. It's happening. We have a lot more countries. Uh, I think South Africa has actually signed up now. I think the only big country that hasn't signed up now is Nigeria, right? So it's going to happen. I think we realize uh, it's 54 countries, and for us to really uh, grow as a continent, we, ha we need one big economic community, right, for us to be able to speak to a China or speak to an India. You know, India and China is the same amount of people, but it's one country. <laughs> and so there's a lot man, under the leadership of uh, President Kagame uh, as chair of the AU. You know, we got, we got it ratified, uh, which is great. And, uh, you know, you need, you need a lot more countries to come on board. You need it passed by the, uh, the local parliaments. But we're going to get there because everybody realizes that that is critical for us to be able to carry our weight as a continent globally. I think that's all we have time for, but uh, Achilleke and Georges Devaux, thank you very much for joining us. Great conversation. Uh, thank you for having us. Looking forward to seeing many more companies uh, accessing the African opportunity. Thank you again, and uh, we hope that you will enjoy the book and that will draw your interest into uh, very practical actions to be uh, present in Africa. And thanks as always to you, our listeners. If you want to learn more about Africa's business revolution, Look out for the book online or in your local bookstore, or please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>